Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Reformed Dissenters, the show where Reformed Christians dissent against popular ideas of culture by asserting a biblical worldview. I'm Bruce Johnson, joined, of course, by my brother Jacob Johnson. Hello, everybody. And today, we also have a special guest. My pastor, Pastor Jonathan Hansen, is joining us today, so thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be able to join you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. Always great to have you here. Um, I don't even know how many times we've had you on the show at this point. It's been like five or six. It's, yeah, it's you know, my, uh, my goal is to just become the most reoccurring guest. <laughs> <Yes>. And ultimately, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> the most reoccurring and maybe a, an official installment. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So today is discussion topic Friday. Um, and as promised, as we promised on our Wednesday episode, um, Pastor Jonathan Hansen is joining us today to talk about the book we are about to start next Wednesday, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So, very exciting. I'm really happy you guys are finally starting the Chronicles. <laughs> starting <laughs> series. <laughs> yeah, well, we recorded all four episodes this month so that we can then have them in the future when we get to the end of the yeah, series. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so we're super excited to start this book, and um, we are continuing our tradition of having Pastor Jonathan Hansen on to talk about uh, the book we're about to begin uh, before we start it. So it's just kind of a cool way to kick things off, uh, get everybody really excited about what we are uh, embarking on, and uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. So... Before we get into all that, though, we have to do what we always do, which is talk about our verse of the week. Anytime we have a, a pastor on the show or anyone who is of, um, you know, a theologically learned person, then uh, we always open up the floor to them to break down our verse. So I will hand it over to you, uh, Pastor Hansen, to uh, do just that. You know, I'm going to I'm going to start putting that on my business cards, theologically learned person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. All right. So, um if your text is right, and we kind of talked about this before we started, we're in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26, correct? Yep. Perfect. That's the one. I just wanted to make sure the pressure's on, the report <laughs> button has been hit. I don't want to read, yeah, right. like, 2 Corinthians 13 and be like, that's an interesting verse of the week. <laughs> All right, so 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 24, says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hmm. Amen. Just yep. through 26, right? Not through 27. Yep. That's it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, this is, uh, definitely a favorite passage of mine kind of keeping in context of what's going on here. Uh, Paul is, making his uh, uh, argument for the resurrection. First uh, Corinthians 15 is actually uh, one of my favorite passages to preach through on Easter because it's the argumentation mm. of the resurrection. You know, I would remind you, brothers, mm. the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and are being saved. And he goes on, for I delivered you first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul is, is making this grand legal argument of what happened in the resurrection. And this is kind of the closing of that. And he's beginning to tie the bow on it 
and and switch his argument to begin to talk about the specifics, you know, because in Corinth they were dealing with some heresies, um, some people coming in who were denying the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul is tying this together. And in the middle of this, he drops this bombshell that Christ is reigning and his enemies are being placed under his feet. So as Christ reigns, his enemies are being crushed. And there's eschatological debate. I mean, I know we're all good post mill guys here, but uh, there is <laughs> legitimate eschatological debate on this passage mm-hmm. of what's the time frame? Is this yeah. something that Christ is going to crush them shortly and then return, you know, like shortly before his return? Is this a long process? We would say it's more of a long process as, as he yep. reigns one enemy after another gets placed under his feet. But the key mm-hmm. point of this passage is that Christ is ruling right now. He's reigning. That Amen. he is the one who crushes his enemies. So often in church life, uh, if you read any church history, we can get into the error of thinking we are the ones who are crushing the enemies. Right. We are not the ones who crush the enemies. It is the proclamation of the gospel unto the ends of the earth that Christ uses to crush his enemies. So he is the one who is crushing the enemies under his feet. And finally, at the last day, death itself will be destroyed. Christ will return. We will be raised up with him to live eternally. And it's the beautiful hope that we have in Christ. The whole chapter is beautiful. I just go and read the whole mm. chapter, guys. Yeah. Amen. Well, that was great. Thank you very, very much for that. Um, yeah. And we've been discussing this verse all week. So if you missed our Monday and Wednesday episodes, go back and check those out as well. But that was a, a phenomenal breakdown. So we, we really appreciate that. So getting into our content, um, Today is really kind of an informal discussion about the book that we're about to begin. And as we always say, the idea is that uh, we are not an audiobook. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you're looking for the audiobook for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you found the wrong podcast. Apologies. Uh, we're six minutes in, but uh, hopefully that's abundantly apparent. So um, what we do want to do, though, our pull on some threads, pull out some themes that we thought were really, really interesting um, in this book. Because uh, Lewis, as we talked about at the beginning of last month, um, was just an incredible writer, wrote so many incredible books on on a vast number of topics, um, theological topics and very practical topics. And so when a man like that writes a work of fiction, it's kind of impossible for it not to have some deeper implications. Um, so this whole month we were talking about how it's got stories, it's got fictional elements, it's got these underlying plots, these character developments, it's got everything a good fiction story should have, and then some, because it's based mm-hmm. in a lot of biblical uh, analogies and allegories and all that kind of stuff. So, very interesting. So, my first question to you, Pastor Hansen, is what do you think the, without giving too much away, what is the overarching theme of this book and how does it fit into the rest of them? Um, the magician's nephew was kind of a, was obvious in, in that it was kind of setting up the world. We're getting introduced to this whole concept. What is the the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? How does that fit into everything else that's about to happen in the next couple of books? Well, uh, last month I kind of said one of the key things in the magician's nephew is the idea of authority, righteous authority, wicked authority. Um, this one's similar, um, but I would say uh, of true nobility. This this has hmm. to do with who is a true king, who is a true queen, who is a false king, who is a false queen. Um, and you see that embodied in the characters. You're introduced to the four children, the four pevensies in the very beginning. Um, and 
they begin to embody these qualities and you see these things happening in them, but you also see a dichotomy between the, the proclaimed queen of Narnia, who you were introduced <laughs> in the last book, right? Uh, yep. And the true king of Narnia. And so you mm. see this split over who is the true king versus who is the one who's just claiming authority that they don't have. And that, that's, that's, that's very much a, a theme. Also within this, you have the idea of redemption. A um, little bit of a, a backstory on the history of what was happening when Lewis wrote this. Um, theological liberalism was really on the rise. Um, mm. And obviously it's still very wow. much on the rise. It's still very, it's even yeah. more prevalent today, but it was beginning to rise up. And one of the key doctrines of the faith that came under attack was the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, which is the mm. idea that Christ died in our place to pay the debt that we owed to God. Um, and that doctrine is still one of the most hated doctrines among theological liberals because they say it makes God a monster. Oh, you know, no, uh, Jesus didn't die to pay the debt that we owed. No, that's not why he died. He died to show us a righteous way to live. And so <laughs> Lewis, in this little children's book, this little fantasy book, attacked that directly wow. um, in the story by reinforcing, yeah. doubling down on the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, huh. that Christ died to pay, and he even individualizes it for a specific person's sins. Wow. So he kind of... He kind of took penal substitutionary atonement and yeah, lit it up with jet fuel, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and that's really interesting um, to know the history behind it too, because I think a lot of times we as Christians are are so familiar with the concept of that substitutionary atonement that we just gloss over it. We're like, oh yeah, that you know, yeah, Christ died for my sins, right? Without understanding the potency behind it and everything that's involved, and then when we see it in a story or, uh, you know, an allegory of that sort of thing. It's like, oh, cool. You know, like, okay, yep. Then it checks the Christian box, you know? <laughs> when I even remember oh, okay. as a kid, you know, I kind of had this idea of redemption as God just throwing out this broad net and I happen to be caught in it. Mm. Right. You know, very Arminian understanding of salvation. And, yeah. Mm. yeah. And really what happens, although Lewis would never claim to be reformed, um, in a sense, Doug Wilson's got a great talk on that. Was was Lewis wow. performed? I encourage you to go listen to that. Yeah, um, I'll have to check that one out. One of the things he does is he personalizes it. And mm. I remember even as a kid reading that, and and just the idea, you know, seeing Christ in Aslan, you know, um, and realizing Christ died not throwing out a broad net for just whoever may, but Christ died for me for my yeah. sin, and it it. it as a young child, it allowed me to wrap my head around and grasp this massive theological concept. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really neat. Um, so, uh, you know what, Jake, I'll, I'll let you go. If you have a question, I have a couple, but if you've got one, I don't want to hog it. <laughs> hog so, the mic. I'm, I'm trying to think back to Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, so, I've, I've read through the series, well, at least... When it comes to, like, the last books, I've read, like, maybe, like, once or twice. Whereas these first few I've read a lot. Um, but this, I'm trying to think back to this one. But in this, probably a very big thing, and what you were just saying, Pastor Hansen, is that, um, and in this, specifically, you have um, 
Aslan dying, right? Aslan being... Um, Spoiler alert, and it, I thought we weren't supposed to give anything away. <laughs> Sheesh, Jake. Well, I mean... I'm as, just kidding. Okay. Continue. Keep going. Continue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming a lot of people have watched the movies, which they shouldn't have. Oh, don't, but don't watch Don't watch. Exactly. Well, yes. <laughs> I, and I, I would definitely say that. Please do not. But I'm assuming a lot of people have, because I know a lot of people have. Um, so, but Aslan is killed by the witch and so but he has these then you know he comes obviously comes back very similar to to the gospel of christ dying and uh, being uh and resurrecting right so this uh is there anything other than what you were just explaining pastor hansen that you would like to bring up specifically with that information uh along the lines of the death and resurrection kind of mm-hmm. being pictured. Um, I, I think Lewis does it better than I could. I just encourage you to read the book. I think it's beautiful. I mean, uh, I was reading it with my son, Caspian. Uh, he's 20 months old now, and he just likes me to read to him before bed. He doesn't really care what I read, but I mean, I'm, I'm reading. I just finished rereading it with him last night, so it's very fresh in my mind. But reading the account of... Aslan returning from the dead. I, I, the way Lewis phrases things, I got choked up. I had to take a break wow. from reading. I mean, I began to tear up, and it was just mm-hmm. so beautiful. The how how he comes back from the dead, and there's this beautiful scene of him playing with the two girls, and and there's this wonderful line that just it just ripped my heart out. He, he said, the, and the girls never basically they never knew afterwards whether it was more like playing with a kitten or playing with a thunderstorm. You know, <laughs> this idea of wow. The resurrected Christ being so gentle, but so powerful. Mm. You know, and back to the yeah. quote I've got behind me. Uh, another central theme in the book is the that was going to come up. Yeah, Aslan is not safe. He's not safe, but he's yeah. good. And so, so for our podcast readers or listeners, do you want to? Uh, do you mind reading that out for us? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so I have a quote behind me uh, for those of you who are listening. It's a quote from uh, Mr. Beaver where uh, the children are asking questions about Aslan and, and you know, they find out, oh, he's a lion. He's not a man. They're very shocked to find out he's a lion. Um, and Su- I think it's Susan who says, you know, oh, I'd be scared of meeting a lion. Is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, <laughs> but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And, and it's this idea of he's hmm. not safe, but he is good. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. The same sort That's of really cool. um, uh, fear in the Lord, right? Being uh, yes. the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fearing the Lord, even though in, in a sense, it's a, it's a sense of reverence and respect that God has power, right? He, yeah. he loves us, right? But we are to fear him. Uh, yeah. And so, well, yeah, I think we I think we miss a lot with the fear of the Lord, because if you see any of the pictures of what the fear of the Lord looks like in Scripture, uh, if you think of any of the accounts where someone is shown the Lord, they see the Lord and they fear the yeah. Lord. It's beyond reverence. Mm-hmm. It's utter terror. Uh, and there's actually yeah, a quote that I had marked here on that on that subject um, said the. Uh, people who've not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot cannot be good and terrible at the same time. 
If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. You know, when they tried to look on Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes, and they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. Wow. I just thought, mm. well, you know, in, in the context of a story, Lewis captures that so well. How can wow. something be good and terrible at the same time? Well, yeah. you have to yeah. see it. And encountering yeah. the presence of the Lord, you do not question his goodness or his terribleness. And that's just something mm. that we miss so often with a, a children's yeah. story. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about that on Monday when we were going through Psalms 2. I mean, Psalm 2 says, you know, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So there's, mm -hmm. there is trembling there's serve with fear, but also rejoice, mm -hmm. rejoice with trembling, which is yep. an interesting, you don't often see that like combined. So, yeah, well, that's great. So we talked about that, the, the, um, resurrection scene, if you will, and, and all that's entailed in that. So totally get if that's the answer to this next question I'm about to ask. Mm -hmm. But if you've got another answer, that'd be cool, too. <laughs> My question is, um, out of the whole book, without spoiling too, too much, we can spoil a little bit. That's fine. Um, people are asking for it if they're listening to this episode, if you're asking me. Um, but <laughs> It looks like 60, almost 70 years yeah. old now, I think. It yeah, I mean, if you haven't read it by this point. Yeah. So, That's um, your fault. <laughs> exactly. That's on you. What would you say is one of your top favorite scenes in this whole book? I know that's hard. And if you have to say the resurrection scene again, that's fine too. But if you've got another one, that would be cool. <laughs> um, that's tough. It, you know, it, it sounds almost unchristian. It's not the resurrection scene. It, that's, that's oh, definitely no. up there for that me. That was a trap. You weren't supposed yeah. to say that. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one of the most impactful scenes. But for me, especially upon rereads, um, it's the little scenes. Mm. Um, there, there comes a scene after the battle where uh, um, Susan and Lucy are talking in whispers, asking if Edmund knows what Aslan did for him. And, hmm. well, no, of course he doesn't know. And Lucy's like, well, hadn't we ought to tell him? And Susan goes, no, 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 don't tell him. Like, how could you tell him, you know, what happened? And it's just, it's striking that, that Lewis is wow. portraying an image. You know, it's not exactly the gospel account, but an image, a representation of what the gospel is. And he's portraying it with so much depth that, that the response yeah. is, how could you possibly tell someone what Aslan did for them. Mm, yeah, you know, and it's like how often do we approach the gospel that way? Beyond that, I mean, the scene of, of Susan and Lucy riding on the back of Aslan, and you know, there's just these pictures that that stand out so strong in it. And really, it's it's the world, the world itself. This is you, you got to remember. Uh, Lewis wrote the line of which in the wardrobe first. Mm. So this was. You know, as Christians, we're big authorial intent guys. This was kind of his introduction of these characters and this world yeah. in his writing. Like later it was reordered and, you know, we have that debate on, oh, which was the right way to read it. But but just authorial <laughs> intent, he wrote this story with the intent of it being your first introduction into this. And so mm. you're coming to know who Aslan is through the whispers of the people in the forest. So Aslan's on the move, right? You know, you're like, Aslan, who's Aslan, you know, and the children yeah. are kind of in that boat. And so it's just, for me, my favorite scenes are the snapshots, you know, the first time Mr. Beaver tells them 
Aslan's on the move, you know, and Lewis describes the reaction the children have to it. The, the, the description of the food in Beaver's Dam is one of my favorites. Uh, so <laughs> we can get to that. Wow. Lewis has, there's a big theme in this book surrounding food. There's wicked, magical That's food. Interesting. And then there's true good food. So as you read it, huh. keep your ear to the ground for how Lewis talks about food. And, and Lewis uh, had a great theology of material. Hmm. Um, Mm. And how material could be used in wicked ways or in righteous ways. And so wow. he portrays it in this book in food, in evil food that enchants you and hmm. brings out the depth of your depravity or good, hearty food around a table with good friends. You know, wow. and, and, and he does this a couple different times in the book. And it's really interesting. Yeah. So that's great to the ground for that. But those are probably my favorites. You know, the Aslan's on the move. Beaver's Dam, the riding on the back of Aslan, and debating whether or not to tell Edmund what Aslan did. Those are, you know, if I had to pick yeah. four scenes that just mm. pull me into mm. the world every time it's those. Nice. That's really cool. So I bet it's probably like been, I guess, described a lot through what we're, we're talking about, but kind of to go outside of the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for a second. Um, how would you talk about Lewis as to who he was and kind of the credibility for him writing a, a kind of not, not a kid's story in a sense, but this story that has so much theological meaning into it. How did he, in a sense, how did he know to do that? How did he, how did he do that in a sense? Um, what, in a sense, what, here we go. Better way to ask it. What <laughs> theological background does uh, Lewis have to kind of put this into the story? So there was an author, I can't remember who it was that said it, but in, in describing Lewis, he said, uh, what Lewis believed about everything came out in what he said about anything. Hmm. Um, so Lewis was a man whose worldview dripped off of every word he said. <laughs> and this means when he got something wrong, the criticism is legitimate. Um, he definitely got some things very wrong in his life. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of grace for that in how much he got right and how well he communicated what he got right. Mm -hmm. And specifically, mm -hmm. we have to keep in mind, Lewis came to faith older in life. Um, so he was already established as a scholar. He was a professor of medieval literature, um, and so he was steeped. He loved the medieval wor world. He loved the medieval literature world. And then he came to faith in Christ, um, really through the influence of his good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, a prominent wow. Catholic. Um, and the question that resonated with Lewis that he couldn't answer was, Tolkien said, you know, he referred to him as Jack. All his friends called him Jack. And he said, Jack, <laughs> you, you love all of these myths. You love these myths of God becoming a man. You love these myths of death for sinners and resurrection. Why is it that you hate the one true myth? That was a question he asked him because Lewis was an adamant atheist. He hated God, hated wow. the Bible, hated scripture, and he couldn't get over it. He could not deny that he loved all of these other myths but the one time it actually happened, the one time God became a man, died for sinners, and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins, he hated it. 
Wow. And so he just couldn't get that out of his craw. And, and it shaped who he was, especially as a storyteller, because he loved fairy tales. He loved myth. And he viewed the Bible in that phrase, the true myth. And, hmm. and basically, all other myth is based on the one time this actually happened. All wow. other myth is based on the reality of who Christ is. And it just yeah. it pours out in everything. Another good series he wrote is the Ransom Trilogy, of out mm. of the silent planet paralandra and that hideous strength three yeah. phenomenal yep. books lewis wrote many many fictional books um but within that you see that he begins to pull in these other myths into this more adult story and his worldview begins to just pour out and so he was a man who is obsessed with communicating the truth i think that's the first thing he, he wasn't necessarily a theologian but he, he was a philosopher not a theologian um, and he was obsessed with communicating the truth and communicating the one true myth. That was his passion. And it came out in everything and especially wow. in storytelling for him. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really insightful. That's really good to know. Well, as we wrap up our conversation today, we have five minutes left. Um, the big question saved it to the end because I want it to be the most poignant and the one that we all kind of think about as we move into this series over the next month. Um, is what, what would you say are the top three themes that we should be looking for? I know that's, that's like a big question. So I'll give you a second to think about it, but like, um, you know, every book kind of has these, these themes. The, the author I'm sure has an idea for what they want to pull out of this book and what they want people to walk away thinking and remembering, maybe if it's to go into the next book, or maybe it's just, Hey, in my everyday life, these stories are going to come up in my head. That's the cool thing about fiction is we, we connect very deeply. We're human beings who connect to music and storytelling very deeply. And so if you can find a way to get a theme across poignantly, I think I'm saying that rightly, um, in a, <laughs> in a fictional way, in a story that's going to stick with people, you, you should do that. So what do you think are the, the top three themes that Lewis was trying to get people to remember, think about in terms of, of fiction in, in this book? That's a really good question. I'm trying to think of... Uh, if it's I, just I think, one, uh, that's fine too. Well, I think... I don't know. I'm just trying to narrow it down to just three, yeah. I suppose. Oh, okay. Um, okay. The opposite problem. I, I, I suppose... Uh, Lewis's world of Narnia expands just beyond the books. Um, hmm. uh, again, referencing Doug Wilson, he says the world is basically so real it can account for mistakes within the world. <laughs> um, so there's a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where you just don't even think about it, but uh, Mrs. Beaver has a sewing machine. Ha! And you go, where'd That's she funny. get a sewing machine from? There's no industrialization <laughs> in Narnia, but the world mm -hmm. is so real and so rich and so genuine. It, it's a real, you know, Narnia is a real place in a sense mm -hmm. that it can account for those things. And so I think the first main theme is, is just the enjoyment of the world, uh, the, the smelling of Narnian air. You know, uh, there's, there's a magic that is seldom captured in books of a scene like Lucy walking into a snow-covered forest with a, a lamppost. And I think first and foremost, the theme is it's just an enjoyable fairy tale. Mm. You know, and, and, and so I like to encourage people, don't miss the enjoyment of the fairy tale 
yeah just to dissect it you know yep you, know, yep. you don't find out how beautiful a bird is by plucking its feathers <laughs> right that's yeah. not how you find the beauty of it so so first and foremost just the enjoyment of the fairy tale itself yep um second uh kind of going back to what i opened with that idea of true nobility who is the mm. true king what does it mean to be a true king what does it mean to be a true queen lewis was a king's man uh, in england he was very much a king's man um he thought that the revolts in, in england kind of the english civil war that gave power to parliament he viewed that as definitely a negative thing within english history he was mm -hmm. a king's man he believed that god raised up a righteous king who would rule and you ought to honor the king. Um, hmm. And so a lot of, because of that, a lot of how he displays what makes a righteous king really comes out, especially in these early books, especially in, I would say, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian, most of all, display what a true king is. And so we see that in the children as they're being built up in this world of Narnia. And we see that in the dichotomy between Aslan and the White Witch. And it, wow. I might take just a minute. I want to explain something in the book that will probably trip some people up um, regarding the White Witch. So I, I would say in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we learn more about the White Witch in this book than we do in the entirety of The Magician's Nephew. And hmm. it's in one conversation in the Beaver's, uh, Beaver's Hut, and it really trips people up because uh, Mr. Beaver says that the White Witch is pretending to be human. She's not human. She's pretending to be human, but she is an offspring of Adam and his first wife, Lilith. Now, Lewis was steeped in medieval history. And mm -hmm. so a modern reader who's not steeped in medieval history is going to read that and go, what on earth is he talking about? <laughs> um, yeah. One of the earliest mythologies in mankind was a woman known as Lilith. Lilith um, is really is really watering it down, but kind of where the idea of the succubus came from, the idea of like vampires came from. Mm -hmm. She's like an early mythological demon. Yep. Um, and in the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, uh, they tie it into a fictional story of Adam having a first wife who blasphemes God, who gets turned into a monster and becomes this demon. Well, Lewis isn't saying that he believes the Talmud. The Talmud is heresy. It's not true. It's not real. Lewis is not saying he believes that history. What he's doing is he's dropping a little nugget for anyone steeped in any kind of mythology to say huh. the witch is a descendant of giants and demons. Wow. Um, and so he's painting her as evil as possible and like a, wow. a succubus, like someone who sucks power and drains power. And that's why Narnia yeah. is in winter yeah. because she sucks the life out of everything. Man, so that's just a little that is really interesting. Little, little nugget when you get to that, it's yeah. it's a lot of times people will read it and they'll be like, I don't understand what? any of this. Yeah. And it pulls yeah. them out of the story. So what Lewis is doing is he's saying she's a descendant of pure evil, this ancient mythological beast, demon woman, <laughs> basically. Wow. And that she's that's pretending crazy. to be human. So yeah. Um, yeah. a little bit of that. But back to the main themes within the book. Um, I think the final theme within the book is redemption hmm. and not just the redemption of Edmund's life. That is where everything comes to a head in ancient, uh, literature. You see this a lot within scripture, but in ancient literature, uh, the main point of the story 
was not contained at the end of the story. The main point of the story was kind of in the middle. Um, that's wow. why a lot of uh, books of scripture, the central thesis is at the very middle of the book and then it huh. expands on it beyond that's that. That's interesting. Wow. Um, Lewis is kind of doing that. So the whole book, the main theme of the book is redemption. And it culminates in the redemption of Aslan. But if you mm. read ahead in the last battle, Tyrion, the king of Narnia, says Aslan redeemed all of Narnia in his blood. Well, if we're familiar with this story, we kind of go, wait, what, didn't he just redeem Edmund? <laughs> but yeah. no, he redeemed all of Narnia in his blood. It's the central act Whoa. of redemption. But you see, in the book, you see a build-up to redemption. You see everything huh. in winter, everything in death, and then the thaw starts to happen. Things start to thaw out. You see, like I said, the comparison of food. You open with evil food, but then all of a sudden there's good food. And they wow. begin to eat and fellowship together. And then Edmund is redeemed... The witch isn't dead yet, but Edmund's redeemed. Yeah. Then the armies are mustered. There's a fight. Then the witch is killed. That's still not the end of the redemption. The final redemption is the seating of the kings and queens on the thrones of Care Paramount. Wow. So you have a lead up to redemption, the moment of redemption, and then flowing from that. And I think Lewis is tying into a theme of scripture where you see that in how scripture itself is laid out that we have the build-up to redemption. We have the institution of the sacrifices, the covenant with Abraham. We have these glimpses, even in the judges, even in the kings, these glimpses of this coming redemption. And then Christ comes, boom, it's the central moment of creation. It's the redemption mm. of all creation through the blood of Christ. And then <sighs> after that, you have what happens now after the redemption? Well, now we're living in light of the redemption, moving towards eternity. And I think Lewis ties into that central theme of reality. Hmm. So I'd say redemption is wow. the central theme of the book. And if I could tie just a fourth one on really quick, I'm going to break all the rules. I would say the sovereignty <laughs> of God, um, the sovereignty of hmm. God in that. Think of um, before the children ever get there, there's already four thrones at Care Paravel, huh. already prophecies regarding them. All of yeah, this is happening yeah. according to God's plan. So that's wow, kind of that's incredible. I would get. Well, that was worth the extra four minutes of this episode. So thank you very much. <laughs> yes, I went over again. <laughs> you did it. You did it. <laughs> I should have seen this coming. <laughs> I should like like four minutes before thirty minutes be like, all right, we're four minutes over. You know. <laughs> yeah, you really should. Yeah. You know, I, just, I, I tack on that little bit about Lilith yeah. and vampires and everything, just so I can be a little unhinged, and then also, uh, you know. Kind of yeah, love it. It's <laughs> great. If you want well, more right at 30 that, minutes, check out Brian Sauvé's podcast. The, Brian Sauvé has a podcast with Ben Garrett, I believe, called The Haunted Cosmos. If you want oh. more information mm. on, like, kind of mythology and whatnot, give that a, wow. give that a check. Yeah, cool. Hmm. We'll definitely have to do that. Sweet. Well. This was great. Thank you so, so much, uh, Pastor Hansen, for joining us today for uh, this conversation. I thought it was really cool. Um, yeah, and I am super excited, and we hope all of you in the audience are just as excited as we are to embark on this journey. Next week, we're going to be reading the first four chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, so make sure that you've read up on those. Again, we're not an audiobook. We do expect you to uh, be reading along with us. So, <laughs> and uh, we will see you all on Wednesday. Well, actually, on Monday. But until then, uh, thank you all so, so much for joining us. Our show website is trdshow.net. Send us an email, trdshow at protonmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
And uh, we hope you have a, a great uh, weekend and a wonderful Lord's Day. And we're looking forward to seeing you on Monday. Until then, remember everyone, in all that you do, do it as unto the Lord.